So here we are into 2018, and as promised, your pastor is going to preach to you from what would appear to be the most boring book of the Bible, the book of Numbers. Those who uh, attempt to read through the Bible from cover to cover, and that's really not a good idea, but for those who attempt to do it, you start with Genesis, and that's pretty good. There's lots of good narrative, lots of good stories, some well-known stuff that's in there. You get to Exodus, and the first part of Exodus is pretty riveting and exciting, and then you get to the blueprints section of the temple, the tabernacle, and that kind of drags a bit, but you muscle your way through it. You made a good resolution to read the Bible. And then he gets Leviticus, (laughs) and you don't make it through. And so you never even get to numbers because by that point in time, he said, forget this, I'm going back to the New Testament, some nice short letters, some gospel stories, something that makes some sense. And so here you expect to be bored by a sermon series on numbers, or maybe you expect to be bored because all sermons are boring, right? Well, the title of this book is misleading. It actually comes from the Greek translation of the Bible. The Greek translation of the Bible called the Septuagint is what calls it the book of Numbers because of the census that's in chapters 1 through 4 and then again in chapter 26. But the Hebrew title of this book of the Bible is In the Wilderness. Perhaps you can already relate to that title, maybe personally. You're in a wilderness. You're in the desert. You're in a wasteland of some kind and for some time. But it's also a truth of where we are collectively. We have been saved, delivered, rescued, but we have not yet reached the promised land. And so we are like Israel, rescued and yet not fully in the promised land. We're in the wilderness. Now, because we're going to be talking about it all year, the Hebrew word for in the wilderness is bemidbar. Actually, the Greek translation of bemidbar is where we get our word hermit. So it gives us that sense that the desert, the wilderness, is that area that's not cultivated. There's a wildness to it. There's actually a Jewish retreat center in Denver, Colorado, called Bemidbar Wilderness Therapy. It is a wilderness-based recovery and treatment program for Jewish young adults. There you go. So this book of the Bible is actually not about numbers. It is about God's people in the wilderness. In fact, more than that, it's about God being with his people in the wilderness. Now we're starting to get somewhere. The book begins with these words in Hebrew, Vaidabar Yahweh El Moshech Bemidbar. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. The Lord spoke to his people because he had made a covenant promise to be their God and for them to be his people. The Lord spoke to his people in the wilderness, and in particular, he speaks through Moses as his appointed spokesman, and he speaks to Moses in the tent of meeting. The Lord still speaks to his people today when we are in the wilderness, personally and collectively. The Lord speaks through his appointed preachers who proclaim his word, and he speaks in the particular place of the tent of meeting. That'll take some more explaining. So before we go to the word and hear it proclaimed, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God, we know you as the God of revelation, for you are the God who speaks. We know all of your Bible is your revelation. All of the Bible, every word is you speaking to your people. There are certain parts of the Bible that are easier to resonate with and understand and other parts that can seem dull or dry or distant. And so we pray especially, as always, for your Holy Spirit to come right now to bear witness 
with the reading of your word, with the proclamation of your word, that we would know it to be your word and that you would speak to your people. And so as always, we also pray for the preacher knowing that he is unworthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Let me start by reading just the first four verses and then give a little introduction that hopefully helps us to see how and why to read the book of Numbers. But listen to these first four verses, the introduction to Bemidbar. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai. On the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, he said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to number by their divisions all the men in Israel, 20 years old or more, who are able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each the head of his family, is to help you. Hermeneutics is the technical word that goes uh, talks about go, what goes into interpreting the Bible. It's the study of how we study the Bible. If we want to understand the Bible correctly, then we need to think about how we are interpreting. Remember what Dr. R.C. Sproul would say. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull and boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. Right? So the right interpretation, the right application of God's word involves both the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of human study. We have already prayed, asking for the Holy Spirit to bear witness now to God's word read and proclaimed. And so we come to the part of human study. And one of the first questions is a threefold question in which we ask about the writer, document, and audience. The writer, document, and audience. Who is the writer? Who did God call upon to write this portion of his word? And what kind of document is it? And then who is the original audience? What was the original meaning for that original audience? Well, briefly on all those, the writer is Moses, mainly, with later edits. It is widely recognized that Moses was the main author of the first five books of the Bible, but there were other contributors as well. For example, the last chapter of Deuteronomy records the death of Moses. So clearly Moses didn't write that portion, right? The book of the Bible begins by telling us right here, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month. And so Moses received these revelations directly from God and then verbally reported them to the people. But certainly he also wrote them down, likely had scribes who helped to write, and then compilers who helped put it all together. And we're going to see more of that as we go along. So Moses is the main writer, and the document is mainly history. It's not poetry. It's not prophecy. It's not a letter. It is an historical book. As such, it's important to recognize that it is a book. It's not a play-by-play -play account. It's not like watching the World Series with Joe Buck doing the play-by-play, -play, right? It's not watching a, a game on the NHL and listening to Eddie Olchek try to do color commentary or Pierre Maguire going between uh, the glass. Where's John, right? He hates this guy because he starts with a storyline. Whether that's really what's happening or not, that's what he's going to start talking about. So this is, this is more like the post-game article or perhaps even 
the post-season article, or maybe even better, it's after a season of seasons. It's like a, a retrospective on the Lemieux years, a retrospective on Art Rooney's leadership and ownership of the Steelers. The whole book of Numbers is written after the events recorded in this book. Certainly there are notes that were taken along the way, do the sort of uh, replaying of the footage, right? But what's the overarching storyline? Well, Moses, again, is the main writer and mainly a book of history, but who is the original audience? Who is this book written for? Well, it's written for the second generation of Israelites, those who will be born Bay Midbar, those who will be born in the wilderness over the next 40 years, the ones who will actually go into the promised land. It's to motivate them to go forward into the promised land. And so this book of the Bible can't cover every aspect about that 40 years in the wilderness, just like I can't cover every aspect about this book of the Bible, although it may start to feel like I'm trying to do that. This book, like every book of the Bible, has a purpose. And the purpose for this book, and I put it into the sermon notes in the back of the bulletin, because we'll come back to it again and again over the weeks, it's to call the second generation of Israel to arms as the holy army of God. The opening of this book is about a census being taken. But why is the census taken? Verse 3 tells us. You and Aaron are to number by their divisions all the men who are able to serve in the army. There really are two reasons why a census is taken. Still the reason why we have a census every 10 years in this country now. We have a census in order to determine taxes and drafting for the military. The nation's leaders need to determine how much is available for tax income and how many people are available to fight if the country needs to go to war. Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, indicate that a census had already been taken for the income tax purposes. And so the census here in Numbers is for the purpose of finding out how many are available if and when the country needs to go to war. And so I've also given you the most basic outline for this book constituting the first army, failures in the march of that first army, and then constituting the second army. And as we go along over the weeks, we'll flesh out this purpose and outline some more. We're also going to see that there is wide agreement in the Christian church about this book of the Bible. Um, where the differences are is actually because there are two interpretive, approach, uh, interpretive approaches to the, book, to the Bible. Let me mention those briefly. The two interpretive approaches to the Bible are dispensational or covenantal. This will make more sense as we go. And again, I'll say at the outset, some of my favorite people in the world are dispensationalists. And some of my least favorite people in the world are covenantalists. So. But I want to show over the weeks why the covenantal interpretation is true and the one that has been held throughout the centuries and millennia, even if it's been less popular over the last 40 years in the United States. It'll also explain why it is that you've never heard a sermon series on the book of Numbers. But as we go through, I think you'll start to wonder why it is more pastors don't start with this as a sermon series. Bay Midbar, in the wilderness, is incredibly practical, real-life stuff. Seems like it could have been written just yesterday or even tomorrow. But only if you remember that it isn't about you. In fact, none of the Bible is first about us. The Bible principally teaches what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. 
The Bible is about God. It's about God's nature and his work, which is then applied to our lives. But before it can be about us, it must first be about God, or it will be misinterpreted and misapplied. There is quite an irony in misapplication by trying to jump to application. And so particularly in a covenantal approach, we see Jesus Christ in the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament, the gospel concealed, New Testament, the gospel, gospel revealed. Jesus is all over the book of Numbers. In fact, just as this book begins with a census, Jesus' life begins with a census. Luke chapter 2 begins, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the whole Roman world. That's why Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem and why it was that Jesus was born in the town of King David because he came from a family that descended from the line of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of a census. Jesus was born in the wilderness. And Jesus is an army of one who single-handedly defeated sin and who single-handedly wins victory for you and I. So let's read the rest of the chapters, one and two, and I'm not going to read every word, all the names and numbers. The names and numbers certainly matter, but rather than try to read and butcher those names, I'm just going to preach their point. And by the way, if you're ever asked to read a bunch of names, just read it with confidence. Nobody else knows how to pronounce them either. You throw in a guttural ah every once in a while, and you really sound impressive. So... From these chapters, we're going to see a place for everyone and everyone in their place. What happens in verse 5, verse 4 told us that there's going to be one, one man from each tribe who's going to help with the census. And then in verse 5, we're told that these are the names of the men who are to assist you. And one name is given for each of the 12 tribes. And that takes us through verse 15. And then verse 16 says, these were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been given, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people indicated their ancestry by their clans and families. And the men, 20 years old or more, were listed by name, one by one, as the Lord commanded Moses. And so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. And then these next two verses give us the pattern for all 12 tribes. We get from the descendants of Reuben the firstborn son of Israel, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, one by one, according to the records of their clans and families, and the number from the tribe of Reuben was 46,500. And so that is the pattern for each of the 12 tribes that every single person counted, every man above the age of 20 counted and then recorded in, in the number given. And that what takes us all the way down to verse 44. These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the 12 leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. The families of the tribe of Levi, however, were not counted along with the others. The Lord had said to Moses, you must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle of the testimony over all its furnishings and everything belonging to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They're to take care of it and encamp around it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down. Whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, 
The Levites shall do it. Anyone else who goes near it shall be put to death. The Israelites are to set up their tents by divisions, each man his own camp under his own standard. The Levites, however, are to be set up their tents around the tabernacle of the testimony so that wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the testimony. And the Israelites did all this just as the Lord commanded Moses. Sociologists tell us that there are essentially two ways in which people come together in groups. There are edge-bounded groups and center-focused groups. Center-focused groups are the organizations that center around a common interest or activity when that group comes together. The Audubon Society is a group that comes together because they are all excited about birds. Choral societies come together to sing. Sports teams are formed around interest in the particular sport. There's all kinds of internet groups that form around a shared interest. And in center-focused groups, there's always that core group of members, but then there's countless others who are out on the fringe, who sort of come and go. Well, edge-bounded groups are different. Edge-bounded groups have a clearly defined boundary. You're either in or you're out. But the group may not have much in common. A family is an edge-bounded group. You're either part of the family or you're not. And other than being a part of that family, individuals may have little in common. It's especially true of extended families. And all of us who went out and spend time over the holidays with our extended families can attest, right? Get a group of people together and think, we have nothing in common except that we're all somehow family. Well, chapter 1 of Numbers shows us that the family of God is an edge-bounded group. You're part of the family or you're not. If a person wanted to become an Israelite, they couldn't just arbitrarily say, okay, I'm an Israelite now. In fact, with the Exodus, there were a number of Egyptians who became Israelites. They wanted to join with Israel, having witnessed God's presence and power. But to become a part of Israel, they had to become a part of a tribe, a clan, a particular family within that tribe. There is a place for everyone, a very particular place. What family, what clan, what tribe will you join? Well, it's still that way for the people of God today. A person cannot just say, I'm a part of the church of Jesus Christ now. At the end of his letter to the Galatians, Paul refers to the church made up of now Jews and Gentiles who had placed faith in Christ. He calls the church the Israel of God. The New Testament church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel. The Old Testament Israelites were the Old Testament church. The New Testament church is the new Israel. If a person is committed to following Christ, then that commitment includes being part of a particular local church family. There's all kinds of privileges and responsibilities that come with being a part of a family. It's also true of the church family. There is the privilege, first of all, of being a part of a family. And for Israel, there was the second anticipated privilege of having a share in the division of land in the promised land itself, an inheritance from the Lord for the Lord's people. And so for us, for those who are in Christ, we will receive the glorious inheritance of the final promised land, the new heaven and the new earth. A member of a local church family embraces the privileges and responsibilities that reflect our glad and total commitment to Christ through whom we receive this glorious inheritance. 
So notice then the special counting that's done for the tribe of Levi. They're not included in the census because the census is established for counting the number of fighting men. The tribe of Levi, the Levites, are to be given the special task of being priests of the tabernacle. They're going to be in charge of transporting, setting up, taking down, caring for, and guarding the tabernacle. They're also in charge of making sure that none of the other members of Israel approach unprepared, lest God's wrath be unleashed on the entire community. And those drastic measures express the reality of God's holiness, God's presence in the tabernacle. Both the Old and New Testament call us to approach God with reverent fear. Perhaps you remember back in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, who lied about the offering that they brought to the church, and they died on the spot. 1 Corinthians 11 warns us not to receive the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, lest we eat or drink judgment on ourselves. Hebrews 12 tells us to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is the God of grace, but he is also the God of glory. His grace is only understood in the context of his glory. R.C. Sproul would say, a God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath, is an idol. And so Dr. Sproul also said, as soon as we think God owes us mercy, we're not thinking about mercy anymore. It's good to be reminded of God's holiness and the Old Testament continually does that and reminds us that grace is truly grace. And so we see a place for everyone by God's grace. And because of God's grace, we see everyone in their place in chapter 2. Listen to those first two verses of chapter 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each man under his standard with the banners of his family. Then most of the rest of the chapter tells us that the 12 tribes camp on the four sides of the tabernacle, three tribes on each of the sides of the tabernacle surrounding it, three on the east, three on the south, three on the north, and three on the west. And that takes us all the way then to the last verse, verse 34. So the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. That is the way they encamped under their standards, and that is the way they set out, each with his clan and family. So picture this, the 12 tribes encamped around the tabernacle. If you ever go camping with a group, you build a campfire in the middle, right? And then everybody sets up their their tents or sleeping area around that fire. Uh, I know a group of families that bought a large piece of property together and there was a lake in the middle of the property and then each of the families was given a plot of land around the lake and over the years, they all built cabins around that lake. The 12 tribes of Israel camp around the tabernacle. And so it turns out that the family of God is not only an edge-based group together as a family, but they're also a center-focused group, centrally focused on the tabernacle. And more to the point, centrally focused on the one who dwells in the tabernacle, Yahweh himself. Do you see Jesus? John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And it was this Jesus who said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And the temple he referred to was his own body. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? God's spirit tabernacles in you. Because of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of the living God tabernacles in us. And as we saw earlier in the service from Ephesians 2, the people of God are being built together to become a holy temple in the Lord. And the great glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth that's given in Revelation 21 displays the new heaven and earth as a perfect cube shape surrounded by 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes, three on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And in the middle, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so Israel is encamped around the tabernacle in a great foreshadowing of Christ tabernacling among his people. And the new Israel, the spirit-indwelt New Testament church, encamped around Christ and the eternal church made up of believers from throughout the ages forever encamped around the triune God of the universe. And so the church of Jesus Christ must be a Christ-centered church a Christ-center-focused group. When we make it about lesser things of common interest and common personal preferences, we fragment. That's not to demean doctrinal correctness. No creed but Christ is like saying, let's just love Jesus, but forget about theology, which is about as ridiculous as one spouse saying to another, let's just love each other, but not talk about our hopes and dreams, what we like or dislike. Let's not try to grow, adapt, or plan. Let's ignore all that. We'll just love each other. Doctrine and theology are the means by which we grow in a true and accurate knowledge of the God whom we profess to love and have at the center. But fringe doctrinal disputes that are given center stage or an insistence on the church doing what your personal preference is, that does not rightly put the center on Christ. So everyone in their place, preferences centered and surrendered to the Lord. And then one last thing, in between the tabernacle and the tribal encampments lived the Levites. The priests intercede between the Lord and his people. Jesus Christ is the great and final high priest who sacrificed himself for us and continually intercedes for us. The whole time that Israel was in the wilderness, they were in God's presence. The whole time that the Israelites were Bemidbar, they were beneath the cross of Jesus. We are still Bemidbar today. We are in the wilderness, personally and collectively. The Lord has counted us. The Lord has formed us as an army to engage in spiritual warfare, led by our victorious King Jesus, and he will lead us to the promised land. Embrace the privilege and responsibilities of being a committed part of the local church family. The Lord speaks to his people in the wilderness by his word now fully revealed. The Lord speaks to his people in the tent of meeting, the spirit dwelling in us and among us, building us together as the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, Christ who is the truth, who set us free, right?